You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to another FDNY Pro Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant John Paul Orger, and today we are joined by Dr. Carrie Kelly and Dr. Diana Kuna. Ladies, welcome. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Today we will be talking about recognizing heart attacks and heart health in general. Uh, Dr. Kelly, you currently serve as the FDNY's Chief Medical Officer and have done so since 1994. Can you share with us some of your responsibilities in this role? Yes, Bureau of Health Services is responsible for evaluation of candidates for annual medicals for our fire and AMS personnel. And we also follow people for return to duty when they've been off the line with an injury or an illness. We also see people in the field when they are taken from fires or emergencies where they have sudden injuries or illnesses. Dr. Kelly has co-authored numerous articles and studies on health and safety aspects of changes in firefighting equipment and an array of other topics. And in the wake of September 11, 2001, Dr. Kelly has been published extensively on the health effects of the World Trade Center attacks on surviving first responders. And for that, I would like to personally thank you. Dr. Acuna, thank you for also being here today. Uh, you are one of the busiest and most respected cardiologists here in New York City. You are a founding member of the New York Cardiovascular Associates and an attending cardiologist and medical officer here at FDNY. You specialize in cardiology, correct? That is correct. So let's start talking about recognizing heart attacks. First responders are taught the many signs and symptoms of heart attack, but we're not just talking about the Hollywood heart attack, as you mentioned in your article, where the victim suddenly clenches their chest and falls to the ground. First responders are trained to recognize the outward physiological manifestations of heart-related medical emergencies. Can you share with us some of the examples of the signs and symptoms that first responders are taught to recognize in their patients? As you said, the, the Hollywood heart attack, although it does occur, is just one example that the regular population knows. But the first responders are taught that you're really looking for any kind of discomfort, if you will, or anything that's stopping the patient from doing what they normally do. That's usually what brings it to the patient's attention. Gee, I don't feel well. And then the other signs and symptoms that may be associated with the inability to do what you were doing, walking up the stairs, loading your laundry, picking up a package, unloading the car, are other events like being sweaty or feeling nauseous or feeling shortness of breath or being aware of your heart beating. Any constellation of those, and notice I specifically did not use the word pain because not everybody feels pain, but they will all feel a sense of something's not right, and it may or may not involve the chest or other parts of the body. So first responders are told to ask those questions. Do you feel something in your neck? Is there any tingling in your arms, left more than right, although it's really indiscriminate, they can be either or. Um, usually they'll ask those questions and depending on what the response is, then they move on to trying to physically assess the person, not just what they're telling you. So heart attacks are the leading cause of death in the United States. Approximately 450,000 Americans die of coronary artery disease each year. This is an amazing statistic. Dr. Kelly, demographically, if we just looked at the first responder community, what is the leading cause of death amongst the first responders nationwide? Our first responders mirror the rest of our country. We have statistics from the National Fire Protection Association, the NFPA, that have gathered information really nationwide that show that 56% of our U.S. firefighting fatalities in 2014 were due to sudden cardiac death. 
This doesn't even begin to tell us the people who had a heart attack and survived it. That's just telling you cardiac deaths. So coronary disease still remains the number one problem for our first responders. So why do you think that is? I think we mirror society to a great extent. I think also there are special risk factors that are always of concern for first responders. There's clearly a great deal of stress in people's lives when they are from one moment to another suddenly changing their activity level from quiet to the bell ringing and they're running to respond. There is an adrenaline rush that occurs as people are heading out the door to save a life or to put out a fire. And you never really know what you're going to be going into. So there's that uncertainty of what will I be facing as I go out to this emergency. We encapsulate people into bunker gear, whether you're with fire or EMS, you're wearing 50 to 60 pounds of equipment every time you walk out that door. That adds the load as to the heat you know, that the member is feeling as they approach an emergency. Dr. Kuna, in terms of surviving a coronary event, what is the primary obstacle or challenge? Quite honestly, the patient and or the member realizing that there's a problem because the most important determinant of how well you're going to do is how quickly it's identified and treated. It's specifically when you're dealing with heart damage or actual heart attack. A heart attack occurs when there's lack of blood flow to a particular part of the heart, the quote-unquote blockage in an artery that closes quickly. This patient gets symptoms. The heart muscle actually starts to get injured almost instantly. And what you want to do to prevent the injury from being complete or damage being irreversible is to restore the blood flow. And that's where time is essential. Time to recognize that there's something wrong, get attention, and get it taken care of will, in the long run, determine how much heart muscle is damaged and hence how the survivor will be acutely and in the long term. What about when it's the first responder that's experiencing the heart-related medical emergency? Are the challenges the same? The challenges actually, I think, are a little bit more difficult because the first responder, again, is just like any other patient. We tend to not always pay attention to the symptom when it starts. Perhaps first responders, I guess, I hate to say it, but women are more notorious for putting it off when they feel a discomfort, and so are first responders because they sort of think, they know what the problem is, but they sort of feel like, it can't be me, or let me take care of my job first, and then I'll take care of me. Uh, so sometimes I think that they don't really realize that something is wrong as quickly. This can't be, this can't be, it's the fire, it's the heat, it's my equipment. Maybe if I take it off, because this is what they'll tell you later, what did you feel? I just didn't feel right, and I stayed doing what I was doing until my other fellow firefighter or EMS said, you don't look well, and then they send you to get attention. So I, I think that that's, that plays a role, that they put it off. Over the years, we've often heard advice given by coworkers like, you should go get checked out, right? Could you walk me through what a first responder would expect to go through when getting quote unquote checked out? The first thing is that you take the first responder out of the job position that he's doing. And that sometimes uh, doesn't, doesn't seem very obvious. But if I'm the first responder and I'm either at a fire or I'm taking care of a patient because I'm a paramedic, the first thing I need to do is walk away from what I'm doing because I'm, a, I'm not going to be able to perform my 
job properly. Um, and the other person who's there with me can take over and take care of the patient or whatever. Uh, but then the next thing is I myself not only remove myself from the job but have to seek attention. The firefighters and EMS, because they're usually at a call uh, at some point together, if I'm EMS, I go to my partner. If I'm fire, I go to find the EMS or the paramedic at the site to be checked out. And where does that start with? Removing your equipment, first of all, because there's heat and weight. The very basics of asking the question, what is it exactly that you're feeling? If it is a fire or they're in a situation where they're inhaling smoke, oxygen is also one of the first things that happen, even probably before they get vital signs taken or taking their equipment off, EMS will provide the responder oxygen. And then the next step would be to take vital signs to see whether their heart rate and blood pressure is responding appropriately to what's going on or is it inappropriate. Heart rate should go up, blood pressure should go up, whether it's a heart attack that's happening or some other cardiovascular stressful situation, adrenaline, which we mentioned before, that's what it's supposed to do. Increase your heart rate, increase your blood pressure, get the blood flow to where it has to go. And if those things are happening or not normal, then you address those problems as they present themselves. Blood pressure low, give the person fluid, get the oxygen. Ultimately, the person will be transported to a place where they can get the proper, more advanced care, an emergency room where actual medications can be given and further evaluations can take place, blood tests, EKGs, chest x-rays, and the such. I think the other important thing is that the EMS will always send people to the hospitals that can take care of cardiac emergencies so that they will make sure the individual is transported to a hospital that is ready and prepared to start immediate care of a cardiac case. That would include EKGs, blood work, and if necessary, immediately going into the cath unit. Because we know that sometimes, as Dr. Acuna said, trying to reduce the injury to the heart by opening up that blood vessel is critical. So the faster you can get into a cath lab where they can open up the vessel, put a stent in, the better off the individual is. Not all people require that, and not all people will be helped by it, but it's often one of the first ways you can stop that progress and turn it around so that you save the heart and you bring people back to normalcy in a rather quick time. The statement that we say amongst ourselves is that time is muscle, and the quicker you reduce the time of lack of blood flow to resuming blood flow, the heart muscle will repair itself best. If it stays occluded, that's a completed heart attack. That part of the heart muscle dies. It's scarred. Depending on how much heart muscle is actually injured, the remaining heart muscle will try to compensate for overall function, but the part that's damaged permanently doesn't come back. Again, the goal is to remove them from that fire scene, take off their bunker gear, get oxygen on them, and transport them as quickly as possible to an emergency room, particularly a hospital that's equipped to take care of cardiac issues. At that ER, they will have an EKG. They will have baseline blood work done. The baseline blood work is to tell us, are we seeing signs of injury to the heart? They do testing, which are troponin or muscle testing, that can quickly show if there's some initial injury to the heart. If those initial tests are negative, they may be kept for many hours so that they can repeat those tests, but the tests may not immediately show a problem. So they'll usually do what are called serial testing, which is over 
say, a six to eight hour period, they will do up to three different sets of blood tests and three different EKGs. They'll usually be on a monitor, and again, they'll be monitoring their blood pressure, their oxygen, just to see that they're stable during that time. So someone may leave that area without having had a heart attack, but that may have been a warning sign. So that we usually, after that 12 or 24 hour period is over, we're not content to say you're fine. We'll usually say you now need to do additional testing. That may be an echocardiogram, which is a sound wave of the heart that tells us a little bit about how the heart is contracting or pumping, tells us about the valves. And then the other testing that we would do would be functional testing, usually stress testing of some sort. Again, you're putting someone through the the motion of increasing their heart rate to see, are we seeing changes in your EKG during that time? There are different types of stress tests, so different tests may be given depending on your situation. But the goal is to find out, is there a problem that didn't cause a heart attack, but it was a warning sign, and we need to find out what's going on. I think one other, you know, area we were talking about is first responders are used to taking care of other people, which is another reason they'll often deny their own symptoms because, again, they're thinking about other people and they they don't want to think of themselves as having a problem, which you said. And also women sometimes get atypical pain. They don't get the classic chest pain. They don't always come in and say, I used to be able to walk five blocks and now I find I'm out of breath or I'm having chest discomfort after two blocks. They will often come in with many different symptoms that sometimes are hard to pin down or have little or no symptoms. That's true with people with diabetes too, who will not have typical symptoms. So that there are certain groups that you have to have a higher index of concern or suspicion because they are not going to come in with the classic, I am having a heart attack. It may be more difficult to tease out. People may tell you they have upper back pain. They may just tell you, my my arms feel funny. And that's actually the symptoms of a heart attack. You have to really listen to what the patient is telling you. So this is post-event care. In terms of pre-event care, maybe preventive medicine, how do you feel about first responders getting baseline stress tests, echocardiograms or EKGs, blood pressure screenings, et cetera? Well, certainly we've incorporated many of these things into the regular annuals that the first responders get. Every first responder it gets an annual once a year where vital signs are taken, blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturation, weight, height. They all get an electrocardiogram and especially because they are done yearly, if there's any change from year to year that might suggest that something has changed, we act upon that. They also have breathing tests too, which are very, very, I mean, the lungs and the heart live in the same neighborhood because they work together. And sometimes either abnormality in EKG or vital signs or PFTs put together can tell us that there's something wrong. Certainly in the younger population, those are adequate screening tools uh, that we can do yearly here and everyone will be followed. Uh, But certainly as the different risk factors present themselves, uh, not just to first responders, but to the population in general, when the first responder uh, gets beyond a certain age, we do realize at that age, even if you're not a first responder, just in the regular population, your risk for cardiovascular disease increases. And the challenges of first responders, particularly the firefighters, is such that we have incorporated into our annuals stress testing or challenging the heart 
to make sure that they can live up to the activities that they need to do, even if they haven't had an episode during an event that has landed them in the emergency room. So they don't necessarily have to have an event for us to do some sort of challenge or physiologic or functional tests to make sure that their heart can respond appropriately to do the job. So then you would agree that it's pretty important for a first responder to know their risk factors for heart disease? It's critical. Absolutely. What are some of those risk factors for heart disease? Well, like Dr. Kelly alluded to, there are certain risk factors we can't do anything about. You can't choose your parents, so genetics we don't really know. Even if your father had a heart attack and your mother lived to be 99, you don't know which genes you got. Age is a big risk factor. As we all get older, we increase our risk of having cardiovascular disease or any other disease, but particularly cardiovascular disease. Male sex, they develop cardiovascular disease at a younger age than women. So just being a man automatically, that's another risk factor that you can't do anything about. Even if you wanted to physically change that, you couldn't. Every cell in the body is still a male cell. Those are the big three that you can do nothing about. But there are risk factors that you can do something about, and they fall into the other category. One, know your risk factor. Know what your vital signs are. Is your blood pressure normal? Is your weight normal? Although blood pressure is one of the ones that require treatment, weight actually requires lifestyle change. Diabetes, like Dr. Kelly said, is a great masquerader. And if you know that you're diabetic or you're pre-diabetic or that you have a family history of adult onset diabetes, you really should know those numbers and have them tested at least yearly to see which way it's going. Cholesterol, and we've come across cholesterol before in, in our articles through the years, and they do test all the first responders for cholesterol. That's a risk factor that, once again, has multiple components. It has a genetic component. If your parents gave you wonderful cholesterol genes, even though we test the cholesterol, your cholesterol may be perfect regardless of your diet, and then you're a very lucky person. You don't have to modify it. But for those who do have elevated cholesterol, that's, again, a condition or a risk factor that you can control. Control with medication and diet, and obviously all coordinated with your physician. And then the other risk factors that we can control that aren't necessarily related to a medical condition are smoking. Cigarette smoking can be a risk factor that's completely eliminated and you never have if you've never smoked it. Unfortunately, the nature of this job is that they do inhale smoke, but we try to also discourage them not to smoke cigarettes because they don't know how much they're going to take in. And those are risk factors that you can modify. Well, since you just mentioned smoke and it being a risk factor, What type of effect does smoke inhalation have on our cardiovascular system in the short term and in the long term? Even at a fire where you have minimal smoke inhalation, you are still being exposed to the byproducts of whatever has been burning in a house. When you then look at someone's carbon monoxide levels, they may not be in a high range, but they're in that low range can be causing changes with the oxygen delivery to the system. You know, years ago, when more people smoked, you could tell the smokers from the non-smokers because in an ER, when we were checking CO levels, the smokers all had levels that were two to three points more than the non-smokers. So that means the smoker is walking around at all times with some carbon monoxide in their system. Think of what that's doing to close down blood vessels. It's something that's going to cause spasm to the blood vessels and close down, shut down blood vessels. So when you go to a fire, key things, obviously, are protect yourself, wear your mask, and try to avoid smoke inhalation. Really, it's part of the job, but you're trying to minimize your exposure. And again, get out and breathe fresh air when you can. If you come out and after a feed and then go and have a cigarette, all you're doing is putting more smoke in your system. 
while we're talking a little bit more about the science of smoke and the cardiovascular system, can we introduce stress now a little bit too? So stress is going to take its toll on our cardiovascular system as well. And at any emergency, we'll take fire, for instance. At a fire, you'll deal with both of those things, right? High stress levels and exposure to smoke. What role does stress play with our cardiovascular system? Well, getting back to what Dr. Kelly had mentioned once before, if we look at it from a very basic, almost, I'm going to say, animalistic perspective, any stress that our body perceives and I mean any stress, I can step on your foot, you can win the lotto, you could lose a loved one, you can get an infection. Your body's response to any kind of stress, first thing it's going to do is make adrenaline. And it makes adrenaline because it wants to get you out of whatever stressful situation you're in. What the psychiatrists call fight or flight, it's a very real thing. And it's a real thing that first responders deal with all the time. One minute I'm sitting, the next minute the tiger's coming at me within four feet. So my body has to go from relaxed to, oh, I got to move. And I think we're talking about multiple factors. So stress is one part of this equation. And a person who is in good shape, whose weight is ideal, whose blood pressure is good, I think is going to be in better position to handle that stress than the person who, upon entering or, or hearing that bell, is already overweight, Putting on the bunker gear is an effort. Running to get onto the rig is more of an effort. Their heart rate, their blood pressure are already going to be points higher than the person who is carrying less weight and has been conditioned and mentally conditioned to, ready to you know, say what's coming as opposed to you're already trying to catch up because you're feeling the effects of that lack of conditioning, lack of activity as you respond. So, you know, the, the equipment we give people protects you on the outside, but the inside has to be maintained as best as possible. The annual really has undergone change in the time that from when we started. And even before the World Trade Center Medical, we really worked to make that medical a more meaningful medical. First of all, we changed it to an annual event. You know, we really made it a medical where we paid attention to breathing and to your vision and to your blood pressure and your EKG. And we really tried to incorporate into the blood work an ability to take a moment and say, how am I doing right now? For years, people took the medical results that came. There would be a discussion about how did the blood look you know, amongst the, the team, and then it would be put in their locker. And then, you know, 10 years later in the locker would be the results of blood tests that had not always been attended to. We now send it to the home in the hopes that the spouse will at least open up the blood work and pay attention to it. And that has been tremendous in making people aware that they should make changes. So I think there is a much better recognition among our members of how important it is to stay healthy. I think the addition of the bunker gear made a big difference in how people had to stay fit to work. And I think we see people doing a better job at taking care of themselves. But there's always areas that we can work on. And blood pressure control is important. Maintaining a good weight or BMI is important. 
the whole idea of pre-diabetics, that we have a lot more people now whose sugars are higher than they should be. And making lifestyle changes early on will often prevent that person from getting diabetes or not get diabetes till they're 80 years old as opposed to 40 years old. Anyone with a family history, with a parent with diabetes or another first-degree relative with diabetes, anyone who had diabetes during pregnancy, those are risk factors that lead the way for you to get diabetes. And that probably is one of the largest reasons for vascular disease in people because it really, on a vascular level, starts changing blood vessels. So if I'm hearing you both correctly, I mean, knowing your family history, knowing your risk factors highly important. Diet, exercise, or paramount. How about sleep? Does sleep play a role at all? I think more and more people are seeing how important sleep is. One example would be the whole idea of people who have um, obstructive sleep apnea. When you look at people that are having problems with interrupted sleep, they will often have difficulties with cardiac arrhythmias or difficulty with somnolence and fatiguing the next day so that sleep really is important. And that's one of the issues with the kind of work first responders do. They are working 24-hour tours, they are running around, and their lack of sleep may play a role in how they're feeling or not handling stress well or having even cardiac events. So Dr. Kuna, if you had one thing you could pass on to first responders, the first responder community, or our listeners, what would that be? To know their cardiovascular risk factors. If you know them, then you can identify when there's something wrong. And I think we've come across it, or we've put that information out multiple times, and I repeated it again. Those that you can change are really the ones that you want to know uh, so that you can act on them. Knowing your numbers is very simplistic, but it's one of the things that I think if everyone walks away just knowing, okay, it's really important for me because my blood pressure has been elevated before that I always know what my blood pressure is. The other risk factors really haven't been a role for me, so I don't have to worry so much. I exercise, I run, everyone in my family lives to 90, so but my blood pressure is a little elevated. So if you walk away just knowing that that's the one that I have to worry about and I'm going to make sure that I get it checked once or twice a year, that would be what I would want them to walk away with. Obviously, if you need to know all your numbers, you need to know a little bit more. But if you know that one, that's, that's really an issue for you. Work on it and know it. So, Dr. Kelly, I'd like to ask you the same. Is there anything that you'd like to pass on to our listeners or the first responder community? I think the whole idea of prevention as well as early recognition so that if a problem arises, we can minimize that long-term impact on the individual. Each of the annuals to me is sort of on the roadway of life, that, that it's a time to stop and say, what do I need to attend to? Because our bodies do change over time. And you may start out with lovely cholesterol and a perfect weight and perfect blood pressure because you're 21 years old when you join this job. And now you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, and you have changed. And acknowledging that those changes may need to be met by, I may need a medication to control my blood pressure. There are many medicines that we encourage people to use for work. We're not preventing them from working because they have high blood pressure. We're telling people control it. Same with diabetes. We're not saying you can't work with diabetes. We're saying control your diabetes, and then you can be back to work safely. 
cholesterol. A lot of people are afraid to start medicine or they take it for a while, they stop it, they want to test to see whether they really need it. The role of controlling cholesterol plays a role in preventing plaque formation that starts a process of closing your blood vessels. And it also may act to help that plaque stay stable so that it doesn't rupture. And it's the rupture of a plaque, particularly under stress, particularly under that flow of adrenaline, that leads to that final blockage in the heart. So that all of these risk factors are integrated and play a role in that final, am I going to get a heart attack? And by attending to those different details, you may be able to prevent it in the long run. Dr. Kuna, Dr. Kelly, I'd like to thank you both for your time and for being in the studio today. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having us. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.